Good morning. Hey, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. You're using one of the chair Bibles. It's page 896. Mark chapter 9. So we are back to Mark. It's been over 230 days since we have looked at Mark. So um, I have high hopes that you will remember everything that we studied back then in January and before that. We're going to look at the second half of Mark, and if you've seen our Mark graphic that Ashley Friedland has uh, created for us, you'll see the subtitle says, The Servant King, and that's a great way to capture both halves of the gospel of Mark. The first half, which we've already looked at, chapters 1 through 8, is all about Jesus' kingship and his authority. And so we saw in those first eight chapters that Jesus has the authority to heal and to teach and to perform miracles and command demons and even speak to the seas and the winds. Only God, of course, can do these things. As we now turn our attention to the second half of the Gospel of Mark, what do we see? Well, we see this glorious king, we see this majestic king suffer. Our passage this morning functions as a sort of hinge passage between the two sections. Jesus climbs a mountain. He's revealed in glory. We see him as perhaps the most kingly, at least up to this point. But then after that, he walks down the mountain, and he's walking towards the cross. Jesus wasn't the only prominent figure to have an experience on a mountain. There was a time when God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. It was a passage that Brandon read just a few minutes ago. And this is after the Ten Commandments are given. Moses takes 70 elders. He also takes notice his three kind of inner circle friends of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And on this mountain, they see the God of Israel, but you can't really see God. And so they actually see the pavement just under his feet, which one translation says is made of shining sapphire. So this is a powerful picture. And later, Moses goes further up the mountain, and this thick cloud descends and covers him and covers the mountain for six days. And after six six days, excuse me, on the seventh day, God calls to Moses from the cloud, giving instructions on what he should say to the people of God, Israel. So what do we have on this mountain, Exodus chapter 24? We've got a Moses, we've got a cloud, we've got a peculiar revelation of the glory of God, and a voice of heaven telling God's people what to do. Okay, let's read our passage now, and I wonder whether you can hear an echo. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And he was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And this is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Six days, three men, a cloud, a voice. We don't see a revelation of God's glory in pavement. Here we see it in a man. Friends, every single one of us in this room underappreciates the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're opposed to him or sort of interested in him or generally bored by him or all in and following him. It doesn't matter if you're a missionary or a super Christian or a pastor. Every one of us in some way undervalues, underappreciates, underestimates the glory of God that is in Jesus. If we put ourselves in this first century world, no matter what the rulers or authorities thought of Jesus or how the crowds misunderstood Jesus or how much the disciples don't actually get it, the driving point that Mark is trying to make here is that this Jesus, as he's being presented on the mountain, this Jesus is supremely glorious. And because he's glorious, we ought to listen to him. And that's really the point of this passage. You'll see it on your screen. Recognize the surpassing glory of Christ on the mountain so you will listen to him down in the valley. I'll say that again. Recognize the surpassing glory of Christ on the mountain so you will listen to him down in the valley. I want you to open up your bulletins. If you have that, you'll see a couple pages for notes, and you'll see on the right side, um, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, on the left side of the notes, you'll see the main point at the top. I encourage you to take notes. On the right side, you'll see at the bottom kind of some works cited. Uh, those are kind of the, the resources that I'm using, so the teaching of various men like Kent Hughes and Kevin DeYoung and others. Uh, we're going to have two points that are really based on uh, this main point, and then applications at the end of the sermon. I'd encourage you to take notes. Here's the first point. Recognize the surpassing glory of Christ on the mountain. So we're really going to take a lot of time uh, on this first point. We're going to take a lot of time to just stare at this revelation of Jesus. And I want you to notice it begins in verse 2. It begins with Jesus leading his inner circle up to Mount Hermon. This is the same mountain that he often went up to pray on. And this mountain is the mountain in Palestine. Its peak rises some 9,000 feet above sea level. On a clear day, its snow-clad slopes can be seen from all parts of the land, from Jerusalem all the way to Tyre. And this climb would take them the better part of the day. So this event probably happened sometime in the early evening hours. And so we got to picture this together this morning. The backdrop of this great event was probably a summer evening sky with, with its moons and stars illuminating the long patches of snow. The scene was unforgettable. And that's all before Jesus metamorphosed, transfigured. <laughs> Matthew's version says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. So these disciples were probably squinting. You know, they didn't have sunglasses. That was invented, I think, in the 12th century. So they didn't have any sunglasses. They were squinting as they were kind of taking in Jesus. 
You know, it's what I do with my boys at uh, 6.45 in the morning, Monday through Friday. So I flip that light on and they're like, whoa, dad, that's too much, right? Come on. Maybe you work all day in a, a cubicle and it's dimly lit, but then you get, a, get outside after eight hours of work and the sun is blazing, you know, and you're just kind of taken aback. Brothers and sisters, I want you to picture this with me. Jesus framed by a thousand summer stars, his being glowing with majesties. And his disciples are squinting, they're awestruck, they're deeply moved, perhaps a little confused by what they see. Notice verse 3, it says his clothes became dazzling. A better translation or more literal translation there is radiant. And that word is helpful. There was a time when Moses would come down the mountain after meeting with God and his face reflected the glory of God. His, his face was shining so brightly that the people of God, Israel, would have to cover their faces because it was just too much. But here I want you to notice Jesus, with Jesus, it's different. The disciples weren't seeing a mere reflection like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. They weren't enjoying the moonlight. They were staring at the sun because Jesus is the source of glory. Jesus produces the glory from within himself. It emanates from him. As Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The transfiguration shows visually what the Father will put into words in just a few moments here. This is my divine son. On the 4th of July, you know, when, when, when I set up fireworks for the kids, we do, do something usually on the driveway. I enjoy two views. First of all, of course, it's the view of the fireworks themselves. You know, the, these great, you know, sparkling, you know, different colors coming out. And, and it's quite a fountain. We, we do those kind of those rockets that you can put on the ground and it kind of throws up some sparks. Well, the second view that I enjoy is the faces of my kids, eyes wide with delight and expectancy, maybe a little fear, right? Their skin reflecting the changing hues of the fireworks. Friends, this is what Jesus saw, his glory illuminating the faces of his awestruck disciples, the unhindered full orb display of his glory dancing in their wide eyes. Can you see it? Can you picture this? For all but five minutes of Jesus' earthly life, his deity was veiled in flesh, as Wesley put it in Hark the Herald's Angels Sing. But then for this brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted, and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Or we can think about it this way. He slept back into eternity to his pre-human glory for just that fleeting moment. Unveiled, unveiled glory, unveiled majesty. And as spectacular as the scene was, it wouldn't die down from here. It would only ramp up because notice who joins Jesus, Moses and Elijah of all people, right? I mean, it's like, wow, what are they doing here? Why are they on this mountain? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy. Elijah, as a prophet, was the restorer of it. Both Moses and Elijah had similar experiences on mountains, which both testify to Jesus. Both were also precursors to the coming of the Messiah. Malachi speaks of Elijah as the one preparing the way for, for the Messiah. And of course, talking about an Elijah-like person who is John the Baptist. 
Deuteronomy says that God will send a prophet like Moses, and it is to him you, Israel, shall listen. So these two, Moses and Elijah, were heralds of the Messianic age. They were heralds of the new covenant, and that's why they're here. But I want you to notice, and you heard it in my reading, Peter doesn't totally get it, does he? Peter is seeing something spectacular, but Peter is blind to what he's seeing. He wants to set up some tents. He wants to set up some tabernacles, as it were. And he wants to set three of them up to honor all three of them. You three are really important, so let's all kind of hang out and maybe we'll eat some sandwiches together and talk, you know. Notice how he addresses Jesus. He says, Rabbi. See that in verse 5? Rabbi, teacher. What? I mean, this is like the understatement of the century, right? After seeing him in his unveiled glory, he calls him rabbi. What? Mark's right, verse 6. He did not know what to say. (laughs) Have you ever met people like this who you just want to say, hey, um, you don't have to say everything that's in your head, you know? And if you haven't met anyone like that, there's a good chance that you're that person something to consider so peter couldn't put this puzzle together okay but he did get one thing right he alongside his comrades notice they were absolutely terrified you see that i think it's the end of verse five they were absolutely terrified excuse me end of verse six brothers and sisters too few in our modern evangelical world have a vision of God that is this big, this glorious, this jaw-dropping. Most of us think about experiencing God like he's our grandpa. Awfully nice, good to have around in a pinch, but terrifying? Nah. There's something to be said about God's nearness and his closeness to us, absolutely, but there's also something to be said about fearing him, standing in awe of him as these disciples were. If your friends had the ability somehow to watch a video of your encounters and exposures with God, what might they see? Would they see someone enthralled with the Lord, moved by God, worshiping Him genuinely from your heart? Or would they see someone a little interested, maybe bored? Man, glad that's over. Time for the Bengals. Friends, could it be that our lives are so filled up with pettiness and anxiety and TV and Facebook that we can't really see God? Could it be that when God is presented to to us, too often he's presented as a mildly helpful, slightly interesting, completely benign God? Notice again, these disciples, as they're viewing Jesus in his unveiled glory, they were terrified. What about us? Well, all of a sudden, notice, a cloud appears. Verse 7, a cloud appears, the same glory cloud that covered the mountaintops of Sinai, the same glory cloud that filled up the temple and the tabernacle, now floods this mountaintop. This was the Shekinah glory cloud of the Old Testament. And, And I want you to listen to this. It's been 600 years since anyone in Israel has seen this cloud. This is a huge moment. This is not just kind of a random mist that kind of uh, happens to show up on this mountain. This is intentional. This glory cloud encompasses them, overshadows them, like the glory of God overshadowed young Mary when the angel announced the birth of Jesus. This cloud overshadows them. 
And from this cloud, notice, a voice is heard. God interrupts the rambling Peter, and he explains this stunning scene. He gives us kind of his own interpretation of this event. Peter, you're confused. Peter, please stop talking. Peter, let me explain. Listen to me. This is the second time we've heard God the Father speak in Mark's gospel. The first time was at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Now we hear God the Father speak as he's about to end his ministry. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Why say that? Why say, listen to him? Well, Peter's proposal of making three tents kind of lumps Jesus together with Moses and Elijah, right? And God's saying, don't you dare put my son in the same category as those two. He's no mere prophet. He is no mere rabbi. He is no mere lawgiver. And yes, Moses and Elijah saw the glory of God. They reflected the glory of God. They even spoke on behalf of God. But Jesus is the glory of God and speaks as God. Jesus is the greater revelation So what's the obvious conclusion? Listen to him. He is no mere rabbi. The law and the prophets are only partial expressions. Here is the final word. Listen to him. The narrative, uh, the story highlights this even further in verse 8. Let me read this out loud. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Isn't that great? Except Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Only Jesus remains. A striking picture for us. These men are big-time characters in the Old Testament. They're hugely important. We don't want to denigrate them, but they are but shadows. Jesus is the substance. Gone now are the shadows. Only Jesus remains. You see, friends, the transfiguration event is a warning against putting Jesus on the same level as really anything, whether it's old religious institutions or spiritual practices or even people. Maybe we've elevated an individual, if a favorite theologian or our spouse or children. Maybe it's a certain way of doing church. You know, it's it's just like the ancient Jews. We have our pet religious practices. Churches have sacred cows, certain practices that ought not be challenged, right? Ultimately, though, our understandings or practices ought not be shaped by our whims, our wishes, but by Jesus' own teachings and interpretations. Jesus is kind of the special key that unlocks the way God wants us to relate to him. So we should listen to him. How does Jesus want me to live as a Christian? How does Jesus want you to live as a Christian and practice church? What does that look like? Are you listening to him? When you think about those things, friends, are your affections more caught up with a good thing or a good person or more caught up with the greatest thing and the greatest person? Jesus's glory isn't an alongside glory. Jesus alongside Moses. Jesus alongside our religious preferences. Jesus alongside our faith church sacred cows. Jesus alongside our favorite people. Jesus alongside a life of comfort. Jesus' glory, as we see here, is a surpassing glory in so many ways, right? He doesn't only surpass Moses and Elijah and the Old Covenant. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of Moses and Elijah and the law and the prophets. He is the exclamation point at the end 
of the sentence that is the Bible. And he brings that sort of fulfillment to us. He brings the presence of the very triune God to us. According to the psalmist, I think this is Psalm 115, verse 3. You can look it up and correct me if it's not that. It says that his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. Today, tomorrow, or one million years deep into eternity, we will never exhaust our apprehension and enjoyment of Jesus. Ten trillion years from now, there will be more to uncover about Jesus. There will be more to delight in in Jesus. His greatness is unsearchable. Friends, Jesus is higher, he is deeper, he's brighter, he's sweeter, he's stronger, he's purer than we can ever imagine. Jesus is more powerful and more personal than you can comprehend. He is more radiant and yet also more relevant than you can comprehend. We've seen this in the gospel. You know, going back 200 plus days or maybe in your Bible reading this past year or so, you've seen Jesus in the gospels. And let me just remind you of what some of the things that we've seen already. He calms storms with words. He heals lepers with a touch. He commands powerful demons. He teaches with unusual authority. He even forgives sins. And he radiates with eye-throbbing light. Listen, friends, the one who hangs the stars in the sky and calls each of them by name also welcomes and blesses the little children. And he will one day come with a sword to judge the living and the dead. This is Jesus. There is simply none like him. No one. You may be thinking, Pastor, I don't see Christ as I should. Well, that's a really great admission. And that's a repentant heart right there. And that's a heart I hope that we all can have this morning. I don't see Jesus as I should. Well, where does repentance begin? It begins, it starts by putting ourselves on this mountain and embracing this majestic Christ. Because it's on this mountain that we see Jesus' surpassing glory one that overwhelms every other competing glory in our lives. These disciples, as they walked down the mountain, they would need this vision in what was to come. It was to be their solace. It would be their uh, cause of hope as they saw their master head to the cross. And as they started to remember, wait a second, not only is he going to the cross, but he's going to call us to our own crosses and losses. They're going to need this vision. And of course, so do we. Let's transition now to our second point. Listen to him down in the valley. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So reality starts to set in as, as these four walk down the mountain to, uh, together. And it's very anticlimactic to me, right? I mean, you think there'd be an angelic escort of some sort, maybe a heavenly elevator or something. No, he just kind of walks down the mountain. I don't know, like he's a man, right? He just walks down the mountain, up the mountain to glory, down the mountain to the cross. And he tells them, don't tell anyone about this until the resurrection. This is the ninth and final time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus commands silence. Why is he doing that? Well, it's not time for him to die yet. And, and, and maybe if the word gets out, it would speed things up to kind of prematurely. But also, too many people misunderstood Jesus. They 
they saw the Messiah as a sort of military leader that's going to come and help them take over, you know, and, and overthrow Rome. Jesus is a different sort of Messiah. So he says, wait until after the resurrection and then things will be clear. But notice the disciples don't really get it. Look at verse 10. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. They still don't have a concept of Jesus dying and rising. Jesus has just told them right before the transfiguration. He said, listen, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again after three days. He's told them. And that wasn't his, their, his first time teaching that either. And what happened back then? Well, Peter's like, oh, Jesus, wait a second. Hold on. Let me correct you. <laughs> you know, the Messiah can't suffer and die. And so he rebukes Jesus. You know, put that in your category of relating to God, right? Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. I mean, you kind of wonder, did the disciples learn their lesson? Well, it doesn't look like it did. Uh, it doesn't look like they did. Their blindness hasn't been fully removed. They don't understand that the Messiah's path is one of suffering, then glory. They also don't understand that it's their path as well. Something Jesus shared at the end of chapter 8, right before the transfiguration, he says this, if you want to follow me, you will take up a cross and deny yourself. So Jesus is just pointing out all who follow Jesus must embrace this life of cross now, crown later, suffering now, glory later. So the disciples in verse 11, notice verse 11, they seem to change the topic. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about over here, so let's talk about Elijah. Why is this relevant? Why did they bring this up? Well, they just saw Elijah. And the Jews expected Elijah to come as a forerunner of the Messiah. So they're thinking, huh, maybe it's the day of the Lord. Maybe God's kingdom is coming. You know, why are we talking about your death and resurrection? We need to be focused on the restoration of all things. The disciples have partial blindness. They see, they don't fully see, much like us. What do they do? What do they do and, 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 and what do we need to do? It's what the Father said on the mountain. So it's back to these powerful words. Listen to him. Let Jesus be the final arbiter of truth. Let Jesus interpret and apply things for you. So what does Jesus say in verses 12 and 13? He says this, Elijah comes first and restores all things. He replied, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it's written about him. So he shows them that Elijah is not a separate subject from his own death and resurrection. He affirms through thinking, yeah, uh, he will come first. He will restore all things. That's prophesied. But just as the Son of Man would suffer, which is also prophesied, so Elijah, the forerunner, will suffer. And he's talking, of course, about John the Baptist. So he's continuing to kind of take off their blinders and continue to kind of tweak their thinking. Suffering is part of all of this. That's what he's saying. It's part of my path as, as the Messiah. It's part of John the Baptist's part as the forerunner. And it's part of your path as my followers. Friends, we have a Christ of glory. We have a Christ of suffering. If you just have a Christ of glory, then you're not prepared to suffer. Suffering is foreign to you. It's just an aberration. It's not the norm. It's occasional. Jesus blows that all up here. He's saying, listen, if you're connected to me, if you follow me, get ready for the cross-shaped life. But if you have just a Christ of suffering, if you don't have a glory, if you don't have transfiguration, then where is the hope? Jesus is making it clear to them and to us this morning, I am a suffering Christ, but I am glorious too. I'm not weak. This, friends, is what we need to hear from Jesus. 
We need to recognize his glory on the mountain and then walk down with him into the valley towards our crosses and losses. Keep listening to him, friends, as you encounter this fallen world, as you fight sin within yourself. And remember the stunning picture of Christ that we see on the mountain. Friends, all of our sins and fears can be ultimately traced back to an impoverished vision of God. If you're wondering why you don't trust or why you don't obey or why you haven't been growing spiritually, consider the Father's words. This is my beloved son. Do you see him? Will you come to know him? And are you willing to listen to him? I want to close with four applications, and I hope they will be helpful to you. Here's the first. Pursue more spiritual sight. Friends, there is more of Jesus to behold. You and I still have blinders on to some extent, even as Christians we do. This is what Jesus himself prayed for to the Father in John chapter 17. He said, Father, I desire that they would be with me where I'm going. And listen to this. He says this, and that they would see my glory. So pray that prayer with Jesus and seek it with all your heart through the word and by the spirit to behold him. Now, what does that look like for you and me this week? Well, it might simply mean for some of us just opening up our Bibles every day. Show me Jesus. Show me Jesus, Lord. It might mean singing songs more regularly or bringing some of the music that you heard this morning into your weeks. It might mean repenting of particular sins that are preventing you from seeing Christ. So number one, pursue more spiritual sight. Number two, expect change. You saw this, uh, this was one of the biggest burdens of Second Peter. That was something that you guys walked through this summer. And Peter kind of double clicks on this memory of the transfiguration because some of the false teachers, you'll recall, were teaching that Jesus isn't coming back. But he says, no, he's absolutely coming back. He's going to return with power. He's going to return with glory, just like I saw on the mountain. So be ready, says Peter. Be holy as Christ is holy. Here's the astounding thing, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It's this little verse that's read in the call to worship. It says this, We all with unveiled faces, as we behold the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, the transfiguration is for our transformation. We become what we behold. When you see Christ through the eyes of faith more and more and more through your lives, through your days, through your weeks, when you trust him and listen to him more and more and more, you will become like him. What an amazing promise there. Number three, third application, endure hardship. Why did we sing earlier this morning, Jesus, I, my cross have taken? Because that needs to be our theme song each day. We're heading down the mountain. We need to pick up our crosses each day. We need to learn how to deny ourselves each day. And I know some of you are enduring pain and suffering right now. And I want to encourage you. Our suffering will one day turn to glory, just like his did. The Apostle Paul, listen to this verse. For this light and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Paul is saying today's suffering is inconsequential in light of the glory that is to come. I don't want to kind of diminish your suffering, whatever you might be going through, but what I want to do here and what Paul is doing is elevating the glory to come. Friends, he will come back and he will come back in glory and you will be swept up in it. 
The Shekinah glory cloud of Jesus will forever settle around you and the people of God, and this will make those hardships, those trials, those pains feel like a little tiny prick. Consider these things, friends. And number four, let the appetizer generate a greater hunger. Let the appetizer generate a greater hunger. Our family loves Olive Garden. And if you order an entree at Olive Garden, you will receive breadsticks and your choice of salad or soup. I always get Zupa Toscana soup. It's so good. I recommend it. What do we see here, friends? We see, we see the disciples having and enjoying a tantalizing appetizer on this mountain. I mean, for me, you know, I, I get those breadsticks, I get the soup, and I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for chicken scampi. That's what I'm waiting for. These disciples... On this mountain, they're eating an appetizer. Will they be able to faithfully wait for the full meal? Friends, it's coming. You see, the transfiguration is a sneak peek of where all history is headed, the second coming of Jesus, which will be in unrestrained glory. They had the appetizer. They had that. They had the taste. They could see it with their eyes. The full meal is still coming. What about us? We weren't on this mountain, but we've experienced the glory of Christ in countless ways. If you're a Christian, I can say that about you. The first time was at your conversion. That's when you began to see Christ as he is, at least just a little bit, and then glimpses here and there throughout your life. These aren't just kind of personal transformations. These are moments when King Jesus unveils his glory and sweeps up new subjects into his kingdom. And so every conversion you witness... Every moving baptism, every painful yet hopeful funeral, every Christian wedding that shouts to you that there is a Christ and he has sacrificed himself for a bride, every new life, every little baby that reminds you, that brings to mind, that helps you recall your own spiritual new birth, every time you take the Lord's Supper with God's people in faith, Every aha moment when your Bible is open with God's people, every hymn which seems to speak into your very soul during a dark day, this is Jesus unveiling a little bit more, one more degree of his glory to you. These are tiny morsels. They're little crumbs. The full meal is coming. So brothers and sisters, allow these appetizers to satisfy you some right now, but to create in you a hunger for more, more of him. He will come back, and he will come back in glory, and you will be swept up into it. And until then, as you live in the valley, what should you do? Listen to him. Listen to him. Amen. Let's take some time to ponder the passage and message as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.